think not being afraid to put yourself first sometimes is really important. You know, like I think there are a lot of people out there, especially women, who will drive themselves into the ground being there for their spouses or their kids or their friends or their parents. You know, like they would never think to say, I need to, I can't do this. No, no. I think saying no is one of the hardest things. And I think sometimes that's really important because if you're giving everything to other people, like you leave nothing for yourself and that that ripple effect is huge. That was Kelly Roberts and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 143. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so there's your little warning for that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded. How awesome is that? And that's made possible by incredible regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is, and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, my hope is that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide for us. When you support this show, you're basically just saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content. 
as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. They seriously become something that I look forward to all the time. So once more, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kelly Roberts. Kelly is the creator of the popular blog, She Can and She Did, as well as the body positive initiative, Sports Bra Squad, which encourages women to ditch their shirts along with their insecurities and join the community of women on a mission to redefine what strength looks like. Kelly has graced the cover of Women's Running Magazine's Body Issue and was named by Competitor Magazine as one of 12 influential and inspiring runners under 30. In this episode, Kelly and I talk about everything from the value of setting seemingly impossible goals to the role that luck plays in success. She shares updates on her third attempt to qualify for the Boston Marathon, how she's been handling a recent injury, and why she's having way more fun with her training than in the past. We also dig into a wonderful conversation about friendship, how we think about making friends as an adult, what it feels like when you go through a friend breakup, how to be a good friend to yourself, and more. I love Kelly, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we're good to go. Kelly, welcome back. Hi. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) So good. Um, I'm very excited (laughs) to be spending my morning with you. I'm awake. The sun is shining. I'm in a great mood. It's summer. <laughs> Winter's behind us. There's hope. I know there is. Is is it funny how I feel like winter stretches on for so long and then it's like Ugh. all of a sudden summer, right? Like I feel like I'm like, wait, has it always not been warm? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. I feel like the last time I talked, I was, I was in San Diego hiding from winter and this year I stayed here. Well, I was gone a lot, but I, it's exactly, I remember it. Winter sucks. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely something to get used to. I tried cross-country skiing for the first time this past winter because I was like, I I live in a place where it snows and I can't, you know, like I'm trying, I'm trying really hard and like it was fine and maybe if I take more lessons and get better at it, it will be better, but I just feel like it's something that I kind of have to just wait through, which is not the attitude that I necessarily want for five months of the year, but. (laughs) I just hate being cold. Like I hate being cold and wet. I hate wearing a ton of stuff. Like I, I like wearing as little clothing as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like San Diego is the place you need to be then. <laughs> oh, but it's so boring there. You're in New York, right? I just need New York to like move. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, I mean, there's no substitute for New York. That's where I'm from. So I hear you totally. It is a, it is an enigma of a place. <laughs> <laughs> totally. 
Um, so, okay, this might be an interesting place to start then since, I mean, obviously, um, by the time this comes out, it won't be June anymore, but at the time of our recording, we're sort of in like the mid year place. So quick, random mid year review. What's something that you feel really proud of so far from 2018? Oh God. Uh, 2018 has kind of been super quiet. Uh, well, I guess Global Sports Press Squad Day from where we are right now is in two weeks, two weeks, about a week and a half. And that's always just like the the most inspiring build up time period and, and day for me, just seeing so many women of so many different backgrounds and shapes and ages, you know, sharing their stories of embracing strength and like having the courage to stand up and say like, you know what, this is what strength looks like. Reading those stories and hearing those stories for me is always sobering. It just absolutely reminds me to cut the bullshit and like this is what's important and like this is what it's all about. So that's pretty exciting. But otherwise, it's been kind of a quiet year, which has been really nice. (laughs) Was that something that you set up intentionally for it to be a more quiet year? Yes, I think so. I, I think I've been firing on all cylinders for four years and... I think I'm finally at a place where I'm very comfortable with what is. I'm I'm not trying to manufacture things as hard as I used to, which I think is just the the nature of being a creator and a blogger. You know, in the beginning you have to you have to generate buzz constantly. Otherwise, like there aren't there are no eyeballs on you. No one knows who you are. And now I think I I and I think it also comes with age. You know, I'm 28 now. I'm still so young, but I think 28 is very different than 25. And I think I'm just a lot more comfortable with what I bring to the table. And I'm not trying to fake it as much as I used to. Yeah, it's always interesting for me to talk to people about whatever their evolution is of a certain thing, right? Like hearing you speak to, okay, I felt like I really had to hustle super hard at the beginning. And now that I have more experience and more exposure and more all of these things that you don't necessarily, it doesn't mean that you don't still work really hard, but that the way that that looks changes. Yeah, like last night I had a friend over and I watch so much TV now, which I never used to do. Like I, I used to like wake up at six in the morning, get my workout in, and then I was at the computer from like eight until midnight, like seven days a week. I didn't see people. I didn't hang out with people. I ate, slept, and breathed building out, you know, my blog. And I was talking with a friend last night. I'm like, yeah, now now I sit on the couch for like four hours in foam roll and like watch television and spend time with people. And that's something that I like I I didn't realize I wasn't doing. And they're like, Yeah, but you know, we missed you and we're glad you're back. But that's it. It was just an interesting conversation to have and remember. Do you feel like that's uh, the quant- what am I trying to say? The like cycle of you know hustle and then rest. Does that tend to be a pattern for you, where you work really hard and then you know have a season of maybe not creating and taking some time off and then kind of go back into that space? I think I was go 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 like just constantly. Like there was no such thing as. I think also this is important to note. Like I was having a lot of fun. Like it wasn't like I was ever sitting there like super burnt out and being like, oh, why me? I think it was so exciting and so I, I I finally found a purpose that really made me feel fulfilled. So it was nothing short of like the best time working as hard as I was. But on the flip side of that, like I think I think the balance just wasn't there and it was just something that I had to like organically find myself. Yeah, I, I love that you're being honest about this. This reminds me of something I actually I think it was Sally Bergson when she was on the show. We were talking about 
how balance is put on such a pedestal. And sometimes the hustle and grind and kind of obsessive nature of a project that you really care about can get a bad reputation. And actually, like you're speaking to, I mean, sure, it can be exhausting. And maybe it's not sustainable to work at that pace forever. But, you know, giving yourself permission to lean into that, if that's like, if things are happening, and you want to take advantage of them, and you really care about it, that there's nothing wrong with pushing really hard for a period of time. Yeah. And the truth is, like, there's a great, there's a lot of luck involved in this space and i've i've been ridiculously lucky that i've had lightning strike like four times now but it's just you're not going to have a future in this kind of crazy world that i live in unless you work harder than everyone else and not to say that other people aren't working hard but like there is you you kind of have to be crazy to chase something like this. It's a reason, you know, that not everyone makes it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And also I think that luck is a huge piece of it. And it's nice to hear you say that too, because I think it's like both, right? Hard work, of course, matters. And no one's trying to take away from, you know, the fact that you or other folks who have been successful doing maybe non-traditional things that involves a, a lot of hard work. And also it's luck and circumstance too. Oh, yeah. Luck is a huge part of it. Like, I, it is weird that so many people don't like to talk about it. I think, I think, I guess people feel like it diminishes their accomplishments. But I don't think that's the case. Like, I would be the first person to say I work my tits off. You know, like, I've missed so many things because I stayed in to edit a video or, you know, work on a, a content strategy or stay up extra late with my sister working on a brand pitch instead of going out to a bar or instead of going on a vacation or, you know, spending my entire vacation sharing it instead of actually enjoying it. But that's the nature of the beast. You just, I think it, you, it ebbs and flows. Like there are times when you get to just like completely unplug and enjoy it. And then there are other times where unfortunately, like you have to work. Mm-hmm. I think about this a lot. I write um, a weekly sort of email series for my Patreon community called Notes of Grit and Grace. And this idea of the balance between grit and grace, which I think is essentially what you're speaking to, is something that I think about a lot because it's nuanced and because it's really not simple or not easy. This idea that like, sure, we want to give ourselves permission to rest and take breaks and all of these important things, right? And self-care and all of that. And also that it's okay to have a really high bar for yourself and not in like a perfectionist way, a way that you're not going to be good enough if you don't reach a certain standard. I don't mean that. But I've been thinking about that a lot of like, it's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to have really high goals and to set a high bar and to not always meet that bar or like that. It's, I think that it's just more nuanced sometimes than the, like, uh, I don't know, common discussions about this kind of thing. Absolutely. I, and I'm still really, really young. And I, I think I still have like the, the majority of my harder, hardest work is ahead of me. So not to say like, oh, I had four hard years and I'm done <laughs> throwing the towel. But I I do think there's a time where you have to just like acknowledge that you have to spend a lot of time giving the attention that, you know, a project deserves if you want something to succeed. And it takes a long time. Like just because you work hard for a year doesn't mean something's going to happen. Sometimes, you know, it takes years and years and years and patience and time off and then coming back to something to see something come to fruition. And that's something I, don't, I didn't think I understood. And I, I honestly, I don't think there's any way anyone can understand that when you're first getting started. Because you just, especially like when someone like me, I, I had so much come to me so quickly and I was working so hard to manufacture more. I didn't, 
there was no long game because I didn't seem I couldn't see myself in the position I was in to begin with. Like everything was so bizarre that I I was like, this isn't going to last. There's no way this is going to last. So let's make the most of it. Mm -hmm. And now here I am, what, four or five years in and I do see a future in it. And it's like, well, what does this look like in five years? What does this look like in 10 years? What do I want and what what, what should I be putting my attention on? That's been eye-opening. Yeah, and and giving yourself sort of this space to take a little bit of a pause and have, I don't know, maybe a more strategic view, right? Where you get out of that, like, take advantage of everything, hustle, 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 right? Like, okay, actually, if I do want to keep doing this for the next two, three, five, ten years, what is that going to look like and how to put some kind of a strategy in place, which I think is applicable to basically every goal, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's it's definitely been a weird transition, but it has been nice that like I've spent a lot more time being introspective instead of sharing everything, which has been the case. Sharing everything on social media, you mean? Not just social, but like I mean, I have a podcast, so I I talk a lot there, but I think for a long time I told myself that I needed to be an open book because that was what I signed up to do. And I kind of quickly learned like, no, you're not an open book. You get to you get to call the shots. Like you can't be an open book. That's you will not live and survive if if everything is on the table. Like some stuff do get, does get to be for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean preaching to the choir. This is something that I think about a lot. Obviously, having a brand that's based in you know my actual values of honesty and you know real talk and all this kind of stuff. And something that I've been thinking about is that there it doesn't have to mean if you're honest and you're sharing things that are true about your life, that doesn't mean that you're also not entitled to privacy. And I think that, like you said, it's up to you to draw those lines. And sort of what I tell myself is that everything that I share is honest, but it's never going to be all of what's going on in my brain and all of who I am. And I think sometimes, especially, you know, with social media or with people getting glimpses of things, it's easy for people to think that they know all of who you are, right? Because everything that you're sharing is true. And even if that's the case, there's still so much else that for any number of reasons doesn't get shared. And it's totally fine for you to have stuff that's just for you. And I I think I struggled with that for a while. And I'm now finally at the place of like, nope, you actually just don't have to tell everybody everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel pressure to, to post on social media a lot anymore. Like I think I post once a week on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of stories still, but even then, like I, I just, I'm at, I'm at a quantity or quality over quantity point. Yeah. So thinking through the first six months of the year, again, what's something that's felt challenging for you this year? I've been hurt for a long time and that the frustration of uh, figuring that out of what actually was happening and having to kind of come to terms with things that I was doing that was not helping me get better. That was a hard moment for me to rumble with. I have a, well, we, I'd had an MRI like three weeks ago, so I finally know what's happening. I have tendinosis in my, in my uh, hamstring hip area and then bursitis. And, uh, I was chasing, I'm still chasing this goal to, to qualify for Boston that in the training this year was so much fun I was just having a blast constantly with my friends and pushing myself was actually fun. But the whole time I was doing it through pain and I had kind of convinced myself like this is normal, like this is your new normal. You're just always hurt and it's nothing terrible. And everyone kept telling me, you know, like this isn't like you're not broken. You don't have a broken bone. You don't have a tear, but like you are not going to get better if you keep going. 
So it's up to you. Like, do you want to recover or do you want to try to make it happen? So I said, you know, like, I'm going to make it happen. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know, this is so hard and I don't want to do it under these circumstances and like try to make my impossible possible in this level of pain that I'm feeling, like this extra layer of, of, you know, BS that I have to push through. So like a month and a half, a month and a half, maybe two months. No, like a month and a half before the race. Like I was just getting to my peak mileage. My PT told me cause I had a 20 miler on my thing. And she's like, look, take off, try to do your long run. But if your pain level is above a five, I just want you to stop and we're going to call it. And that was kind of like the moment of for me to be like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to take time off. I'm going to recover. And then I'm going to do this the right way, you know, and, and being able to remember how much fun I had, because I think running for me be kind of kind of became more of a thing I had to do, even though I was still enjoying it. It definitely felt more like a job than a choice. And uh, this this go around, like I just totally feel so much more in control. And the time off has been awesome. <laughs> like I'm, right now I'm back to running one mile every other day. <laughs> and I can't even tell you how wonderful that is. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in there that you just said that I think would be interesting to talk about. So specifically with, is this your longest period of time off or injury since you started running? I think last year was probably the last year. I don't remember exactly how long I took off, but after the London marathon, which is where like I really crashed and burned and it it took like seven months to wrap my brain around how disappointed in myself I was and how frustrated I felt. Uh, I think that was the longest time I went without running because I, I ran in between, but like I there was no training for things. There was no method to the madness and I would I would go weeks without running. I think this is the first time that I took time off purposefully and didn't feel guilty. Mm, interesting. Okay. What do you think let that shift happen? I think I just trust where I'm at now and I don't feel compelled to do things for my community. You know, I think I think not letting people down was a huge motivator for me. And I really felt like I let a lot of people down who were, you know, invested in my journey and who were going through their own journeys alongside me. I think I I really felt guilty. And then this time around, like it just was for me. And I realized like that's not true. <laughs> I I didn't let anyone down. Like everyone gets the long game, you know? Like the re- there's a reason that this goal that I have is so intimidating and difficult and I really didn't understand that it was going to take a long time for me to do it. I really thought the second time around that it was just going to happen because I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out just knowing you can do something isn't enough, <laughs> which is a gift. Like it's not that's not something that should shoot you in the foot. It's an opportunity to like have this inc- like insane rewarding journey. Yeah, this idea that like 
just believe in yourself and anything is possible. Not that it's not powerful to believe in yourself, of course, yeah. but that the truth that you're speaking to is like, well, sometimes that's not enough, right? Yeah. Like, And that that's, I think, can be humbling and also encouraging. It doesn't mean give up. It doesn't mean don't believe in yourself. But also there's a lot of it's it goes back, I think, to what you were saying before about, you know, the success that you have found career wise that, of course, it's a lot of hard work and that also luck is a factor. And I think that the same thing is true with athletics. I think the same thing is true with like both mostly any goal. And I think we don't like that story necessarily because like you said, it can maybe undervalue the hard work or, you know, we like to think that we can control all the things. And the truth is that we can't, you can do everything quote right and try really hard and believe in yourself. And sometimes things still don't work out. And that's the truth. Yeah, I think finding opportunity in adversity is one of the hardest things to do. And I think especially when things aren't going your way and you can't catch a break, it is pretty much impossible to like look around and say like, okay, what do I have? And like, what can I be thankful for? And what can I be grateful for? And like, what can we do with this? It just, that's something that actually takes practice. You know, you have to go through shit in order to be able to get to that point and not feel like you're doomed and not feel hopeless and absolutely helpless. So I think it just took practice for me. Like I think things didn't go my way a couple of times and I felt it it just made me feel super powerless, you know, and I couldn't help but feel like, why is this happening? You know, like I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything right. Like this isn't fair. And I didn't like sit there and no, I did. I did throw a lot of temper tantrums. <laughs> there was a lot of crying involved. It was just a really hard time. And it, I think it was just in a big transition period in my life. I think I was becoming this this more laid back person, which has never been me. And I think, I think coming into your own power is also really intimidating. You know, you, you sit there and you feel like, should, is this right? Like, this doesn't feel right. Like I should feel more anxious. (laughs) I should feel more scared. Why do I feel so at ease? You know? And I think I fought that and resisted that for a long time. Yeah. The sort of like, uh, side effects of leveling up, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That, that was what I've never really thought about that before, but like, that was one of the hardest things I think I had to go through in the last year. Okay. Say more about that. What do you mean? I just, confidence, like having that confidence in where you're at is very foreign to me because I feel like I'm always trying to prove myself which is a, like a, a challenge that I really love. Like I find, I, I think it's so much fun to prove myself, but I think I'm at a point where I, f- I finally feel like realize like you don't have to prove yourself anymore, Kelly. Like where you're at is where you're at. It, I Once I kind of realized that in my running, which is so fucking funny that that's <laughs> what taught me this. But once I kind of was like, I don't need to prove myself anymore. And like, this is for me. And Everything I'm learning is so great and rewarding, but like, I, I really don't care what anyone else thinks or like has to say about me and what I'm doing. Like, I just really don't. It's I'm so proud of myself, and that's such like a gr- gratifying moment to be that. Like, that brought me so much ease to say like, I totally acknowledge what has happened, and I acknowledge that I have a really long way to go. But like, I welcome that challenge. I think that ease that comes from that, that feeling that anything is possible is both terrifying and equally like energizing and exciting and eye-opening. But I don't feel like I need to 
make things happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, so going back to the injury thing a little bit, I mean, it sounds like mentally you're handling it differently this time than maybe previous times. I remember back to when I was running and when an injury or something would pop up, I always felt so much fear and anxiety around like losing what I had built, whether that was, oh my gosh, I'm going to take time off and I'm going to lose all my fitness. Or there was just always a lot of fear of loss around that. Can you talk about um, sort of the role of that for you this time, if that's relevant? I'm definitely still like uh, frustrated with losing fitness because I like I did get to a point where I was in really good shape and I was feeling really great. And that feeling of ease when you run at that level of strength that you you work really hard to acquire, that moment for me, like knowing like, great, <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> bye-bye strength. I, I'm letting you go willingly. Like I could go get in a pool right now and swim my butt off and maintain this fitness. But like I... That I don't think ever gets easier because getting started again sucks so bad. Like right now I'm literally running one mile. Like that is what I'm allowed to do. (laughs) That is what my PT has me running one mile. And there was a point yesterday during my mile where like I was halfway and I was like, I'm tired. And then I was like, Jesus, no. (laughs) Oh, and I thought ahead to this marathon that I want to run this fall. And I was like, how am I ever going to run this pace? for 26.2 miles and faster. So that I think I don't, the day that I learn how not to be like, I am so grateful that this fitness, that this ease, (laughs) that this level of fitness brings me is going away. Like I think I'll be able to retire or like write a book and change lives forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think also I have been hurt for so long and running through pain for so long that the, that the, just like the prospect of running pain free was so much more yeah. appetizing than do running like this, like I was. Yeah, and I think so much of that, you know, short-sighted fear and anxiety about losing fitness or any of those things or whatever the stories are that we tell ourselves in those moments, like that it it is short-sighted and it is small and there's and it's fine to be disappointed and to, you know, have whatever feelings you have when things don't go well, but like being able to sort of talk yourself off the ledge of, okay, well if I built up to this place once, that means that I can build up to this place again and I don't like I had to sort of learn not to attach too much meaning to any one thing, whether that was good or bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still do it. But like, that's the exercise of like, okay, I got here once, like I can get here again. And how nice will it be to be pain free and to just like sort of relinquish all of that, like holding on tightly, you know? I think it was easier this time too, because I had so much fun. Yeah. The second, my second time trying to be cute, like I was alone for most of it doing my training and that was so lonely and sad for me. And I still had fun. Like I, I genuinely love training for these like crazy goals that I set for myself. Like I pushing myself outside of my comfort zone is something like one of the greatest joys of my life. But this go around, like I had my coach, John Honerkamp, who I like love with every fiber of my being, who is like just genuinely one of the most fun people on the planet. And I did a lot of running with a bunch of my like, you know, badass lady gang, for lack of a better word here, who are also like so much fun to chase and to be chased by. I think I was like, even though I'm hurt and I didn't get the payout that I wanted, like this journey this time was so much fun that like I won. This was great. This was everything that I wanted it to be. And I can't wait for this. I get to do it again now, you know, and even even bigger this time with more people than that 
that was like a moment where I was like, yeah, I'm a little bit bummed, but like, I'm so much more excited to be able to do this again. I love hearing you talk about making the process fun because I think that there's a tendency to sort of glorify struggle or glorify suffering, which doesn't mean that, of course, you did struggle and there are some days where you don't want to do it and it feels like shit and it's right like that, that. It's a both and. That's true too. But I've been thinking about that also like, what if this were fun? What if I allowed this to be fun? What if I gave myself the gift of asking what would make this more fun and like then actually put those things in place? Is it like you said, having friends to train with? Is it, you know, whatever those things are for any different goal that someone's working on, I think that there's this idea that like I have to toil like in agonized solitude, otherwise it doesn't count or something, right? And that there's like something yeah. in that story that I think is kind of destructive. Totally. I And I think that's something that you have to learn. Like I think you have to go through both before you realize like the levels at which something works for you. Cause like, I know a lot of really high level athletes and even just people in, in like fortune 500 companies and like whatever they, they have to make it hard for themselves to succeed. And I think they are some of the most fun people I know too, but like people have different levels of what works for them. And I think the only way to figure out that balance is to go through all of them Mm -hmm. you know like you can't just constantly have fun all the time otherwise I would (laughs) like I I think back to my first time trying to BQ and I think that was I suffered a lot but I didn't think of it like suffering I think it was just so scary and hard but I also like when I think back to that I remember fun even though if you watch the videos, like I, you can see in my face how terrified I am or like really struggling and like just trying to wrap my brain around the fact that like I'm not good enough, <laughs> you know, like I'm not doing the things that are being asked of me. You can see it on my face how like just shattering I was all the time, like not being able to keep up and not understanding why, you know, like I was doing the training. I should have been able to keep up. But it's the brain, you know, the brain tells you what you're capable of. And the whole time my brain was like, this isn't, no, no, Mm -hmm. no, 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 you can't do this. And like, that was a big barrier I had to break through. And even though all that was happening, like, I remember having so much fun. Like that challenge was so much fun for me. And then the second time was just kind of boring. It was just, I was just so lonely. So having people to share the experience with, I think for me is the key. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot in the realm of long distance hiking. Like I did my first long hike in 2016. And so much of what you just described of the like fear and suffer fest. I mean, I was so miserable. I cried like every single day. And a lot of that was just being too far outside my comfort zone that it was Mm. everything was new and unfamiliar. I had never been camping before. Like it was, I mean, it was so outside my comfort zone that I had just basically like constant imposter syndrome, right? Or, and any of those feels. And I finished it and I was like, that was terrible. I'm never doing this again. And then obviously time goes by, right? You like sort of change your mind. And then I think about like when I hiked the Arizona trail last year, that was, I'm seeing so many parallels in what you're saying. That was such a solitary experience just because there was nobody else out there. Like I would go two, three, four and a half days without seeing any other human and it was the most time I've ever spent alone and that in and of itself was like trial by fire type of situation and like going into my hike this year I know that it's going to be hard of course and I know that's like a large part of the reason that I want to do it and also I'm committed to how can I make this more fun like that's a huge goal of mine this year is trying to figure out how to have like at least fun like I don't know 10% of the time that would be great I really think it also comes down to the why, like the why you're doing this. Because I think the second time that I went for the BQ, I went for it because I felt like I needed to. Like I'd started this thing and now is the time to get it done and get it over with. 
And even though I was having fun and enjoying the process and I, I learned so much, I think the why wasn't there. I, I just didn't, I wasn't invested in the way that I should have. And then this time around, you know, like it was a total choice to say like, I want to do this again. Like I didn't need to, I could have very easily have never done this again and no one would have cared. Like I, I did feel like I won, like that I tried, you know, twice. It could have, I I think even now, like walking away and not have like not completing it, not be queuing, like I would be okay. I wouldn't sit there and feel like, oh, because I have, you know, a bajillion years of my life left and I can do this whenever. But I don't feel, I wouldn't feel like some guilty part of me, you know, like I let myself down. And I think that was a big reason why I had so much fun this time around was because like I I genuinely wanted to do it and I genuinely wanted to be out there every day and I really wanted to see what I could do at that point with like this new outlook and I just think I was looking at it the right way and I and even when I did stray I I could identify what was happening and like be like all right let's come back why are we doing this and like you don't have to be doing this you can stop yeah there's I mean there's a, a huge difference. difference between feeling like you have something to prove, uh, especially to some kind of external, I don't know, person or community or situation versus what happens when you actually really choose to do something for, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So I'm curious, what is it about this goal that still excites you and maybe how has the motivation and meaning behind qualifying for Boston changed between your first attempt and now? I think this go around, it's less about Boston and more about seeing what I'm capable of when I like show up for myself and give my best effort every single day. You know, like I think the first time around it was about seeing what would happen and if I could do it because I really did think I was going to quit. I like did not, (laughs) I did not believe I was going to make it more than two months. I thought, I really thought I was going to go into it and make this point of like, this isn't for everyone. Like I'm okay running for fun. And then I realized, you know, like fun is what you make of it. (laughs) You can have fun doing anything. And the second go around was, you know, it was about making it happen. That was the goal. You know, I knew I could do it and I wanted it to happen. And then the third go around was just that. I just, I wanted to see what could happen when I just said yes, you know, and it was a very drama free training cycle, except for that injury. And then this go around, like the, I think what's lining up to happen is the most exciting part. And I cannot wait to share, but I think it's just going to be very different. And I think, I think I'm just really excited to run because I just really miss it. I really miss those like really like grinding out tempo runs and pushing myself and I miss a recovery run where I just get to think and be out there. And I miss, I just, I miss that like bonding and communal aspect of like training for a goal with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, everything that you're saying, I'm like, man, maybe I want to start running again. No, you're hiking. <laughs> I mean, well, you not right, whenever. not now, but in general, <laughs> I feel like, well, it's interesting because for me, I ran really seriously and by seriously I mean that I took it seriously not that it was like super fast or whatever but I ran really seriously for four years and 
did completely burn out. And then in the years since, in like the, I don't know, whatever, three years since then, there have definitely been times where I've tried to pick it back up again. And, you know, it would be six weeks would go by or eight weeks would go by, but I felt like I could, and something would come up where there was an injury or I would stop liking it. Or like, I just felt like I could never get back to that point where I could string together enough good runs where it felt worth it. And I just, I don't know, I think what you're saying about connecting to the why is really important. Like maybe that just hasn't been there for the last couple of years and maybe it'll come back or maybe it won't, but it's a, it's an interesting thing to watch how you feel about something, especially something that used to be really important to you change. And it sounds like even though you still love running, so maybe your path isn't the same as mine, that it definitely, your why has changed along the way. And it's like giving yourself space to let that be true. Totally. Because I I definitely feel like I did not want to be a part of races for a long time. Like, I I think I ran two races last year. And that was so nice for me not to be able to run and not have to race and not have to, like, prove anything or, like, you know, like, just run. Just the simple act of running. And it was kind of hard to see myself change as a runner because... I, you know, when I was new, when I was a new runner, like I was so doe eyed and excited and I really feel like I drank the Kool-Aid. Same. And then I kind of, yeah, I think everyone does. And then I kind of became a little bit pessimistic after London. Like I think I was so hurt with what had happened and I was so let down and so frustrated and, and all that, that I just didn't want to be around that because I just, it was just, I don't know if, I don't think it was hard to see. I don't think that's right, but I was definitely like, I felt like I was kind of hurting alone. Like, I don't, I felt like no one else, you know, was, could understand what I was feeling. So I just felt really lonely in my, like, not wanting to race and not wanting to go to races and not really wanting to run all the things and race all the things and just kind of like do what felt right and figure out what was wrong. But coming back to it again, like, I still don't want to race all the races. I want to race some of the races and I do want to fun run some races when, whenever I, you know, it feels right. But yeah, it's giving myself permission to change was hard. Yeah. I I'm also interested in your experience of the identity piece, especially because you are so publicly identified as a runner and that that's obviously a huge part of what you do. Like for me personally, that started to feel like, a trap almost, or like a cage that I had, it almost, I got to the point where I sort of felt like a caricature of myself where I was like, okay, like I have to do these things. Cause these are the things that people expect. And let I me, mean, nobody really cares as much as we think they do. So a lot of that was just stories in my own head, but it started to feel like running was this thing that I had to do. Cause I had built some semblance of success and even some semblance of a business on it. And for me, I don't know, like it started to feel not great. And I'm interested in your experience of the identity piece. Like when you identify so strongly with something and when other people identify you with that thing, sort of the, I don't know, like the identity aspect of having such a beloved brand, like how you handle being both real everyday Kelly and then like inspirational online Kelly, you know, who runs or whatever. Yeah. I think I had a harder time, not with like identifying as a runner or being this runner. I think I have a harder time with the running world, that top level of the running world, because I feel like I'm so much more comfortable with my audience and the women. And, you know, there are crazy enough men who, uh, who are in this community that we've built on She Can and She Did. 
But that very top level of the running world, uh, I don't understand it and I don't want to understand it. I think we can all coexist, but like, I'm a theater person. I grew up in the arts. I grew up in an underfunded, you know, constantly underfunded uh, environment where no one cared and we fought for everything we did and loved it and had the best time and the pressure was there and we, we, you know, what's funny is like everything that people kind of learn in team sports is synonymous with what you learn in the theater, you know, like, like pressure and working together and believing in each other and good sportsmanship. And except we have like creativity and, you know, like making something out of nothing and like all this other stuff. And, and I constantly see people, it's just weird to see everyone hark on how important it is to get people doing sports young because you could not have paid me money to pay sports or be interested in athletics or want to do any of that stuff, which I think is kind of normal. Like I see this in women all the time. Like I went through a kind of a phase where I was like, God, I wish I, I wish I would have run sooner. And then as I grew, I'm like, no, no, I don't. Because had I have done that, like I would not have gotten this. Like I wouldn't have learned what I learned. And like I came to it at a time where I needed it. And I, I don't like being physically active still like even though I love running like sporting <laughs> is not my forte yeah I'm I don't yeah yeah I don't like this world and I really struggle I just struggle with people looking bigger than the scope of sports or like running or you know all this stuff I every time I read articles or see people complain about stuff it was interesting my sister she she was a a, a golfer in college and my dad was a Pac-10 swimmer. My uncle was the head of sports psychology at UCLA. Like everyone in our family was sports, except for my mom and me. And uh, me and my sister went through college at the same time because she took a year off and went to some crazy academy in Florida to do sports, to play golf, and then uh, to redshirted a year, which means that she sat out on the team but still got to like practice and play. So we ended up graduating together. And it was so fascinating to me to watch her complain about the lack of support that her women's golf team got when like they would take trips to Hawaii and like eat steak and like they had a food budget and they had like they all got so much clothing and all this stuff. And I wanted to be like, bitch, my my scholarship is two thousand dollars. <laughs> that was the highest scholarship that was like allotted the theater department. <laughs> like, do you not see the disparity out there what are you talking about like you get food for free on your trips mm -hmm. <laughs> like what and I was like in the grander scheme of things like no one cares about your golf like I think it's so awesome that you guys are doing this but like no one cares about our theater too but you guys get so much <laughs> so much and to hear you guys complain that you don't get anything is just brain-blowing I was like let's go talk to the science and the arts <laughs> let's compare apples to oranges shall we so it, I, that's, I think, the biggest thing for me that I struggle with is I just I love running and I love my community because I think everyone kind of runs for a purpose, but it's not who they are. It's kind of a thing they do to survive. And it's this new thing that has given them courage or confidence or, you know, just like a leg up and a way to move forward or take a step forward. But none of us really care about the running world as a whole. Or the bigger yeah that's interesting so it's it's just it's just really interesting to watch how people market to them because they don't get them at all mm -hmm. and they don't care to 
Yeah. I mean, well, but obviously what you're doing has struck a chord because you have a lot of people that feel the way that you feel. Yeah. But even still, like when I work with brands, like they refuse to listen to me, they don't get it. They don't want to get it. When you say they don't get it, what is it? I think they don't accept or not accept, but I don't think they're open to hearing that, uh, running isn't other people's worlds that they don't like eat sleep and breathe the elites and that they like I think if you show up to a race right now and you ask them who's racing I think a vast majority of them will say I have no clue and I really don't care yeah that it can be you know that people run recreationally for so many different reasons and it doesn't mean that they necessarily care about what's going on at the higher levels of the sport which isn't to say that people shouldn't care you know like I think I think especially right now, like some of our elite women are some of the coolest and grooviest and most like inspiring and motivating and creative people. I think we're at a point where I think people are really thinking outside the box, which is the only way that they're going to succeed outside of winning races. Mm -hmm. But I do think people still are just like totally missing the boat. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about the disappointment that you felt after the London marathon last year. How, yeah, right. Like let's, let's be (laughs) in this. Let's talk about this really positive thing. I think like a common question that comes up, I mean, not just when, obviously we're talking about things through the lens of running, but so much of what you're saying, I think is applicable to, you know, impossible goals in other areas, right. Or big goals in other areas. And I think a a theme or a question that comes up a lot is this idea of how to pick yourself up after a disappointment. Um, is there anything that, that helped you or that you'd want to speak to for someone who is asking that question? I really think it's like the only thing that actually works is like the one thing you don't want to hear when you're going through it. And it's just that time, (laughs) like you have to just give yourself time to feel what you're feeling and give yourself a chance to change from it and, you know, evolve from it. And that only comes from hurting, you know, I think hurt can be a really big catalyst for change and introspection to look in and say like, what can I, what can I do to change this or you know, and I don't want to say fix it because I think one of the most dangerous things that people do is try to fix pain and fix hurt instead of just like living with it. Because unfortunately, like that's a part of being human is like people die. We lose jobs. People hurt us. We hurt people. And we immediately try to fix things. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of going through this with a, my little family, my group of girls who I call my family, but uh, some one of us is going through something pretty big and uh, at a pretty important like time in her life. And I think she's very afraid of being hurt from like the inevitable hurt that's about to happen in this like transition that's going to need to happen. And this phase that just from what happens when, you know, you end something and uh, th- my friends telling her, like, I don't see- like seeing you like this, which I know that they're saying like, I don't like seeing you uh, like drown in this unknown instead of like pulling the pandaid off and just like ending whatever it is, like making like just closing that chapter instead of saying like, there's a reason that you haven't done it yet. And there's a reason that you haven't closed that chapter yet. And one, I do agree that you should talk about this more with us and with other people and, you know, try to, be as open as you can because you're not alone and, and you're hurt and you know we're all here for you but at the same time like I think there's so much power in letting yourself like really grieve 
loss and fear and like feel all those things and just like really be just give yourself permission to be really sad Mm -hmm. because that sadness isn't going to end you that loneliness will you know that feeling that you're alone yeah I I think you're right yeah this idea that like uh, we do so much to avoid feeling pain yeah and I mean, pain of and different I get kinds. It. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's terrible, like feeling disappointed or feeling, you know, any, any sort of different, you know, iteration of being in pain, it sucks. And I look at my own life sometimes and like so much of the mental gymnastics that I do is like trying to avoid feeling that way. And I don't know that, yeah, you're right. Like that the answer is time and that ripping off the bandaid and, you know, there, it just, it's such a human experience and being able to allow yourself to feel disappointment, to feel pain, to feel anger, to feel sadness, to feel loneliness, that there's a lot of power that can come from letting it be okay. That that's how you feel. And the shitty part of it is like, we have to survive. So like sometimes you do have to numb yourself to certain things in order to keep going. You know, there are some things like there are some mountains that are just, they're insurmountable for some people and, for that, they have to pretend that something didn't happen or, you know, that they're not, that they, they just cannot lean into that pain. And that is sad. But, you know, like, unfortunately, like the world doesn't stop turning when something horrible happens or, you know, like for so many people, they have to keep showing up at work and there's only one way to do that. And that's to numb or to, you know, forget or to try to forget and with everyone, it's just time. Hopefully with time, they realize, you know, they have to hit bottom or they have to open up that just insanely deep wound in order to let that pain, you know, just like be a part of them instead of like some someone who walks beside them. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it's the other way. It's the pain walks beside you instead of eating you from the inside. Yeah. You said something on Instagram recently that I really connected with. You said, chase goals so huge, they break your heart. Can you tell me what you mean by that? I think failure is very difficult. Well, I don't think I know. Failure is very difficult for women. Like There's so many statistics that back that women won't do things until they feel like they're perfect or that they know the answer or that they're right for something compared to men who just kind of throw themselves at things. And it, I think... For so many of us, like we're, we set the bar just high enough. You know, we, we're ambitious, but we're just ambitious enough. And I think getting hurt or looking stupid or making mistakes is a big reason why so many people don't just throw themselves into impossible, you know? And you never really know what's impossible until you figure out where your limits are because that line moves. The second you find out where your limit is, like you now know how to push past it and find the next one. And I think that failure that you feel when you fall short or when you really misstep or just like completely miss the landing completely, that hurt is huge and there's no way around it. It it sucks that you have to take like so long to, you know, brush yourself off again and, and try again. But I think for for so many, like we set these goals and we think that the goal that we set is the end all be all and we don't give ourselves permission to let them that uh, goal change and evolve each time we try. And that's where the hurt comes in. Like 
letting yourself evolve and be open to where you're at and where you're going and saying, I'm going to let that go and chase this instead and possibly let a lot of people down. That hurt is really important because I think, I really do think that from hurt comes growth. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I think this, uh, this is interesting what you were saying about being just ambitious enough or setting the bar just high enough. Like I can look back at so many times in my life when I did that, whether that was running related or work related or relationship related, or I mean, literally anything that fear of failure or judgment or any of those things Like we want to appear put together and you want to have, you know, the experience of setting a goal and then meeting that goal. Right. And like checking off the box. Like there's something I think that's not just personally fulfilling about that, but that also is like socially rewarded kind of like hitting these benchmarks and it's yeah. a, it's a really different experience like this this is sort of my how I feel about long distance hiking, like, I mean, with a PCT this year, the failure rates for long through hikes are really high. There's, you know, if you're trying to do something that's going to take four plus months, you know, you twist your ankle, this happened, like, there's so many things that can go wrong, both within and outside of your control. And I feel like it's interesting to me to set a goal that I literally don't know that I can do. And there's, I and I, I don't know that I've done that that much in the past. Like, I think even with running, like setting time goals and that kind of stuff, maybe it was like the upper reaches of what was possible, but it was still always that I felt like pretty confident that it could happen. And that felt safe. And I think, again, this is a both and because there's definitely value in setting achievable goals too, and having like benchmarks and milestones and that kind of stuff. And it, this kind of thing is whatever works for each individual person, you know, like do your thing. But for me, I'm finding that there's a lot of freedom in growth in setting goals where I'm like, I literally don't know if I'm going to do like be able to do this. And that like from a very real place, like the rate of failure is very high. Yeah, I, I really think it comes down to confidence and I think it's the confidence card and it, it comes down to like self-efficacy and I mean, this is something running taught me was, you know, like I I am not a good runner. I'm not innately good at running. It's something that I really have to work at and I'm reminded all the time how hard it is for me. But like it taught me that I could be a good runner, even though I'm not an innately good runner doesn't mean that I can't be a good runner and like this idea that confidence isn't something you're born with, it's what you like make of yourself and the time that you have, that is what matters. And having the confidence to say like, I don't think this is possible, but I'm going to try is one of the, it'll change your life if you like approach things like that. What, outside of the world of running, can you share an impossible goal that you either currently have or have had in the past? I'm like at a crossroads where I'm dying to get back into more like of the of the more creative space and theater film. And it's I, I was literally having this conversation last night with one of my friends because she's ex here in New York. And uh, I was like talking to her and I was like, it is so bananas to me how quickly I fall back into play by the rules when I think of that world because I know it so well. I know it inside and out. And I mean, I spent 20 years of my life doing it and I went to graduate, I mean, not graduate school. I got my undergraduate degree in it. And uh, I, I think I think it's so much harder when you know how hard something's going to be and how important luck is to have that confidence to say, I'm going to try. I don't know what success even looks like, but I want to be a part of this and I'm going to start asking for help and I'm going to start applying myself. I think it's so much harder to do that when you know how hard it's going to be and how, you know, impossible it might be. 
versus blindly going into something saying I have nothing to lose and I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, yeah, I think that's such a real and honest point. Like I think about myself as a beginning runner. And yeah, I had no idea about anything. And there was something almost freeing about that. And I think part of my and again, whether I get back into running or not, it is what it is. Like I feel to be honest, emotionally neutral about it. It's just an interesting thing to talk about. But when I, I think some of the obstacle when I have been trying to get back into it, you know, over the years since stopping doing it is exactly what you just said. Like, I know how long the road is, right? And I know how hard it is. And I know that I don't actually really enjoy running until I'm at a certain fitness level where I don't feel like I'm going to die all the time. And it's like, like you see the road being so long. And that's the flip side of what we were talking about, about injury of like, well, if I got there once, I know I can get there again. And then yes, that's true. And also there is a certain freedom that comes from being new at something when you don't have that like innate knowledge of, yeah, this is going to be tough. Yeah. It's hard. It's really, really, really hard, especially when you're really passionate about it. You know, like when you can't imagine your life without this thing, but at the same time knowing like there is a very real chance that this will never happen for me. That is a very difficult pill to swallow. Yeah. But then it comes down to like what, well then what do you mean? Like you mean like being able to pay your bills doing that is failure? Not being able to do that? Or what if you're just involved in some way? What if you show up to a high school and you help their theater department? you're in the world, you're doing what you love. Like what I think for me right now, rumbling with, uh, what, at what capacity do you want to be involved is where I'm at. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting question too, because it's easy to go to the extreme, like success looks like, you know, you know, like you said, being able to pay all of your bills from whatever the thing is, or however someone, you know, might traditionally define success to actually have to ask yourself the question of, okay, but is that really the only thing that would feel good? Like what's like essentially the like minimum, you know, viable dose of this? Like could I be involved in a way that was on a smaller scale and that still felt really rewarding and sort of giving yourself permission to explore and experiment with a lot of the the spaces between kind of these binary states of either A, you're not involved or you're not doing it at all, or, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you're involved 100%. It's the only thing that you care about. You're really successful. You're making a ton of money from it. Like there's so many different, different points along the spectrum between those two and any number of those might be really fulfilling for you. Yeah. It's, I, it's even harder because I'm at a point where I'm like, girl, if you could become, you know, this athlete and get repped by these companies, what the hell is stopping you from saying that you can do anything? But then I sit there and I'm like, yeah, but I'm not this and that. And I'm like, you're, I like to sit there like you're a crazy person. You are literally everything that you talk about not doing, you're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like I'm, I fall victim to it left and right. It's hard. It is very hard to break the mold when you know, when you know a world really well. Yeah. It's easy to be yourself when you have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be kind of a pivot, but you've mentioned a couple of different times your group of close friends, um, your badass lady gang. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know if it's if tips or advice are necessarily what I'm asking for, but for creating a strong and supportive community? Because I have found in the last eight months or so, I've been doing um, live events, Real Talk Live events, essentially like these kind of conversations in person in different cities. And something that's come up a lot in the live events is that one of the reasons that people want to come more one of the reasons people want to come to events like this is for the sort of supportive community aspect. And I get questions a lot about, you know, 
how to build those kind of friendships where I'm having trouble making friends as an adult or, you know, stuff in that space. And I feel like it seems from the outside, both in terms of the community that you've created online and in the relationships that you have offline with your friendships, that that's a skill that you have and something that you value. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. I, it takes me a really long time to make new friends. Uh, I, I love being alone. It's like my favorite thing in the world. I'm the type of person that if I, if I hang out with a bunch of my friends, like I need the next day to like recharge and I need to be alone. And well, knowing that has been, you know, really, really helpful because I don't, I no longer feel guilty being like, I don't want to hang out today and I can't hang out today. I need to. I need to read or I need to write or I need to just go home. But I I think for me, it takes a while for me to really like build these relationships because I, I trust is really big. And I feel like I feel like lasting relationships only come when you really give yourselves time to get to know each other. And for me, like I, I've met most of my friends here in New York City at November Project, that free fitness movement. And uh, like I went to November Project for like three months and didn't talk to anyone. And on the last, I, I was getting ready to go west for winter and it was like two weeks before I was leaving. I met, uh, I live with her now. She's one of my best friends, my friend Casey. And she kind of just came up to me and started talking to me. And we, we did the workout together and then we went to breakfast after with everyone and we talked and uh, she just kept texting me when I went west and she did most of the work in our relationship because I wouldn't think to reach out and, you know, do that. So I think making an effort is incredibly important, something that I did not do or rarely do. Uh, but I think giving yourself permission to like go to new things and be open to who's there and talking to people. And I know it's so freaking scary. I am so bad. At, I mean, I then went to LA and didn't talk to anyone for two months at November project. <laughs> and like, again, in the last month before I left, like I, I like drew every, I mustered every ounce of my courage to go to this sign making party for the LA marathon. And I didn't really know anyone, but everyone kind of had seen me and knew who I was because I'd been going for, you know, eight weeks. <laughs> and you know, I, you know, met people at the thing and then I started to hang out with them more. And again, then I was going back to the East coast. <laughs> so it was like, I made these friends and then I was like, bye, but we kept in contact. And I think I made more of an effort then because I saw myself making friends in New York and I saw what they did and how those relationships came that they required effort and reaching out and staying in touch. And now like I, I see those people in LA all the time because I'm always back there and I stay with them and they've become some of my best friends. So I think, I think knowing that being alone isn't uh, a death sentence and it's okay to be lonely and give yourself time and patience when you're making friends, but you have to show up and you have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone if you're shy or if you're an introvert. And uh, it's a, I, 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 again, it's like a quality over, over quantity thing. Like I don't want 400 friends. I want 10 friends who I know that if I kill someone, I can call, <laughs> you know, just people who you really trust to not tell you like it is, but to like have hard conversations with you. And that only comes when they know your history and when you guys have enough time to really talk and get to know each other and running is such a great way to make friends. It's such a, such a great way to make friends. Cause you're just with people for like an hour. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two things that you're speaking to that or that come out most strongly for me is this idea of, well, yeah, you have to show up and you have to go to things, which sounds really simple and maybe is really oh, simple, but it's my like, least favorite. It's the, right. And also that's the only answer. Like, how are you going to meet people if you yeah. don't go to things? Right. So like that's, yeah. and, and this idea that it takes time, I think is really important too. I mean, for yeah. lots of things, but especially for friendships that, you know, sometimes, especially when we're really lonely or we want these really deep connections, maybe it can happen really quickly. And that's great if it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And it takes time and being willing to, you know, like you said, or like you said that your roommate did invest that time over and over and that it is work, not necessarily in the like slog, I hate doing this type of way, but like anything else, if you want something to grow, you have to pay attention to it, whether that's your business or running or like, I think so many life lessons, I know you feel the same way, have come to me through running and just like the value of consistency. You can't not run for a week and then try to run all of your miles on Sunday. That's not going to work. And the same thing with friendship. I can't just like not reach out or not be there for them or not. And then, you know, once every however long, like talk and think that that's going to lead to the types of relationships that I want. It's like, just, yeah, show up, not just show up to the new thing, you know, to meet people, but then just like continue to show up for those people and whatever that looks like in those relationships. And I think understanding that not everyone needs to be your best friend yes. is really important. I don't know why so many women feel like they need to like have this sex in the city type click with everyone. Like if you have a sister or a brother or like you know, family is great. And so is, you know, you can have one best friend and then a bunch of good friends. I have a bunch of good friends who I love to see, but like, you know, I, there are, there are just some people who you, who you should have, who you would do anything for. And those are the people who have really difficult conversations with you and who, you know, you aren't afraid to voice your opinion or tell them that you you know you're hurting or stuff like that. I think you need those people, but I don't think you need to you know have a TED talk with everyone you know. <laughs> I think that that's a really good point. That's something that took me a while to learn. When I first moved here to Bend, I didn't know anyone. And, you know, it takes a while for somewhere to feel like home, especially if you don't have any friends when you're moving there. And I was really unhappy for the first like year, year and a half, specifically because of that. You know, I was meeting lots of people. And they were nice, but I didn't feel that, you know, really quick, instant, oh my God, we're obsessed with each other, let's be best friends connection, which had been my experience in a lot of friendships in the past. And it wasn't until I said, okay, what if I already have enough best friends? Maybe they don't live in the same city, but it's not like I don't have close friends. What if I take the pressure off these relationships to be, like to fit into this specific mold? And it's, it was almost like overnight how much better things got. And it's funny that then I have developed like best friends here through that. But there was something about like, hey, what if it's okay that this is just someone that you go hiking with every once in a while? Or what if it's okay that these really, you know, that you're on, you know, maybe the secondary ring of this really close group of friends? Like, What if that's fine? And it was like sort of giving permission to exactly what you said. Not everyone has to be your, you know, ride or die best friend that, that it allows for, I don't know, more fluidity and more different kinds of relationships that are fulfilling in different ways. There's this, uh, I'm about to take a strong left turn. There's this uh, psychic in at Duke University. I forget her name, but she's been researched by like the government and Duke. They've been studying her brain for decades. And she I don't even know if she's still alive, but she's really old. And uh, a, a very close family friend of ours, I call her an aunt, but uh, she lost her son uh, a while ago. And right when right when it happened, her best friend got cancer and she was at Duke getting breast cancer, like chemo. 
And someone gave her this woman's number. And it's crazy because this woman, she like only answers the phone if she feels compelled to. There's no answering machine. You can't like pay her if she like reads you or if she, you know, lets you does something with you. Like it's free, you know, it's totally free. And uh, so she happened to be there at Duke and she calls and the woman picks up her phone and it like worked out perfectly. Like she, she, our family friend had like two hours and it was like the exact two hours that she had. So she goes and she gets this reading and she, this woman told her like a bunch of stuff. But one of the things that she told her was about soulmates and that uh, in our lives we have like a bunch of different soulmates and they can be a bunch of different ways. Like they can be romantic partners, they can be best friends, they can be moms and kids, they can be dads and kids, grandparents and whatever. Like we have all these people in our lives and we go into our lives with these packs that at one point or another will find each other in these lives. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I'm telling you this is the left turn. (laughs) We're going crazy. But uh, yeah, that in this woman who we love, she went into this life with her son with this agreement that uh, he was going to pass away young and she was going to learn that level of pain and loss and grief. And then like that was her purpose in this life. Hmm. And that was his purpose too. And like, so we go through all these different lives learning things. And it's why like when you meet someone, (laughs) you immediately feel like you know them. There are certain people who we just immediately trust or who we do not trust. And we just like, after even like, I know there's some people in my life who like three years now, like I still just like don't like them. I know that they're great people and I can be around them, but like for some reason I don't like them. And then there are other people who I meet and I'm like, you and I like know each other. We've, I know you. It was just like an interesting way. I have a couple of best friends who I feel like are my soulmates because I learned so much from them and things have happened that I'm just like, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense to me too. I think about the soulmate thing a lot because I don't believe in it in the sort of very simplistic romantic context of everyone has one person and you meet them and that's your soulmate. But I do believe in what you're saying to be true, this idea that there are certain people in those relationships can look lots of different ways. It can be romantic, it could be familial, it can be platonic, and that there are people that are meant to be your people, right? And that yeah. that doesn't mean that other relationships that aren't at that level aren't also important. I've been thinking totally. t- too lately about how so much of the marker of success of relationships of all kinds is longevity. Like we've been friends for this many years. We've been married for this many years. And sure, maybe like if, if that really works, that's great. But also some people are in your life, you know, for a certain period of time. And I think you just spoke to that a little bit in that story that, you know, maybe this person's a really great fit for you for six months or six years or whatever. And that then maybe you outgrow each other. And like, what if that's fine? I, I don't know. I feel like I'm in a season of thinking about just like letting go in general and not holding yeah. on so tightly to things when it's time for that to evolve. And what if we don't, you know, categorize a friendship or a relationship as a failure just because it isn't, it doesn't have lifelong longevity. Does that make sense? Totally. I have a, I have a best friend who I just, I don't want to call it a breakup because it's not a breakup, but I mean, we've been, we've been best friends since I was like six years old and she was four. And we had one other time where we really like stopped being friends in high school. And like three years later, my brother passed away and we kind of found our way back to each other, but something happened recently and it wasn't anything like drama. It wasn't anything crazy, but like there was a a reckoning point where I, we just, something happened and it was a point where I was like, I don't think there's room in my life for this anymore. And I don't like hate her and I don't sit there and, and, you know, you know, wish horrible things. And I'm sad that the relationship isn't 
what it used to be. But like, I think it was, we were holding on to something that was no longer for a long time. And it just, there comes a point where you have to be like, things may change down the road. Who knows? You know, we may become super close again one day. We may not. I don't really care. I'm just so grateful for all the lessons that we've learned and for what this experience has taught me about myself and relationships. And it's it's just like a story that never gets told is like best friend breakups mm-hmm. because the way they're portrayed in the media is like she steals your best friend or your husband or, you know, like undermines you at work or like all these weird things. When in reality, like you just grow apart or, you know, you grow apart and you don't acknowledge it and then other stuff happened because of that. Yeah, I think I'm I'm really glad that you're bringing this up because I think that this is really common and sometimes, you know, a friendship ends over something dramatic, but lots of times it doesn't. And again, I mean, I think sort of the a theme that's coming out of this conversation that we're having is about leaving space between these like binary states. You're either best friends or something yeah. horrible happened and you hate them and it's like dramatic. Okay, maybe. But also, what if relationships like just transform? I've had this experience recently too, you know, with one or two friends where the relationship has just shifted and maybe downgraded in importance in both of our lives. Maybe we don't need to talk yeah. every day anymore. It doesn't mean that I don't still value this friend and I know that that's mutual and it doesn't mean that we're not still there for each other, but we're no longer each other's let's text every day. Okay, that's fine. And maybe in the future that will change and maybe not. It's like, there's just like so many different iterations of things that can work. Um, and it's just, yeah, like letting that, be, letting what's true be true and not necessarily trying to force it, which I think has some ties into what you were talking about before about impossible goals. And like there, it does feel, it's hard to articulate, but I think it feels different to be striving and pushing yourself towards something that feels impossible, but is the right fit versus trying to force something that just isn't the right fit. Like it's, they're both pushing really hard, but they don't feel the same. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And then being open, because I think the second one, I think sometimes we do force something that isn't the right fit. And within that, it, it will change and evolve. And if you aren't paying attention or if you're not open to change, you will 100% miss what was supposed to what was supposed to come of it. And you will continue to try to force a square through you know, a circular hole. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's anything in particular that helps you to give yourself permission to grow and change, especially when that might feel uncomfortable? I think my brother dying taught me so much about not sweating the small stuff because I think I understand pain and uh, finality on such a different level than a lot of other people who haven't had to survive something so traumatic and so like it's something my family still every day has to evolve with. So I think when when hard things happen to me I I am like obviously I I still I still blow up about stuff and I still overreact about stuff, but I think I quickly remember like this isn't the end of the world. Nothing is going to, you know, like this this void that you're feeling right now where there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I know that's not true. And I think it's I think forgiveness is something that I learned from that and I think forgiving people who hurt us or who do things that are unforgivable is one of the hardest things to do. And I always thought this was bullshit like whenever any whenever I'd hear anyone speak or read anything about people forgiving people for doing horrendous horrible things. I used to think like 
that's such bullshit and that's weak. And no, there are some things that are unforgivable. And I do think that's true. I think, I think unforgivable and forgiving though are different things. Like Mm -hmm. I don't think you're, I don't think you're making an excuse for what they did. I, I think I think you're giving yourself the capacity to humanize someone and understand that people do really awful things sometimes when they're hurting or feel alone or, you know, some people are actually just sick. You know, there are, there are bad people in the world, but for the most part, I do think everyone's trying to do their best. And sometimes when they're trying to do their best, they end up hurting other people along the way. So trying to give people the, not the benefit of the doubt, because I really don't think that's what it is, but I think seeing things as they are, is hard but something that I'm able to do a lot more now so like when hard things happen like relationships end instead of really getting up upset about how they someone hurt me I'm able to say like I kind of get it and I wish this wasn't the case but you know it is what it is and I'm gonna be sad and hurt for a while but I will bounce back because this isn't the worst thing to ever happen to me I remember like breakups, this always happened. Whenever I broke up with my boyfriend or a boyfriend would break up with me, they would always say like, why aren't you more upset? And I would say like, I am upset, but like, dude, (laughs) this is a blip in the radar compared to the pain I've felt. (laughs) I think something that you said a couple of minutes ago, the value of seeing things how they are. I think that's so important in this idea of letting yourself grow and change. Cause so I think so much about giving yourself permission to, cause change is essentially like letting go of one thing and moving into something else. Right. I guess like yeah. at its most simplistic. And in order to do that, I think, yeah, the, it, it is about being able to see things how they are and say like, yeah, this isn't really working for me. Something. Okay. So something I've been thinking about a lot is I have in the past, my tendency for change is that I am not able to make a change until the pain of not changing outweighs the fear of making the change. Mm. And I think that that's really common. Like I have to get to the point where I'm like, this situation sucks so much that I'm willing to endure whatever the fear or uncertainty or, you know, things are to go through it. And I think that that's common and I'm trying to work on being able to make change in other situations. Like what if I don't have to wait until it's like rock bottom misery situation in order to make a change. And so much of what you just said, I think speaks to that, this idea of like, what if I can just see things how they are and say, you know what, this isn't really working for me. Why do I need to wait until I'm like fucking miserable in order to do something about it? Like what if I can just evolve or change or pivot or experiment in this other direction? Like I'm kind of playing in this space of change being less dramatic, if that makes sense. I had a relationship kind of go through this recently, a a friend who I was really close with when I moved here. And when the height of all my stuff kind of happened and I was like working around the clock to try to sustain it and it was, it was a hard period. Uh, Like my relationships fell to the back burner. Like I wasn't hanging out with anyone. I wasn't giving anyone attention. She got married and like, I just could care less to be honest. And that was a very hard thing for like a lot of our friends to, see and not like they they couldn't understand why I couldn't care more and why it was like the last thing I wanted to be a part of and like to be honest like I wish I wouldn't have gone to the wedding because like I just didn't want to spend the money like I there's so much pressure to be the friend that you should be you know instead of like being selfish is something that we do not let ourselves do and I knew in that moment like the only way this was going to like I was going to succeed 
through this rough patch was if I was selfish, if I gave everything to me and it's just what had to happen. And I knew that, but a lot of, a lot of people didn't understand that. And, uh, I, we had this conversation like three weeks ago cause I saw her for the first time in like a year. And, uh, at first she was like hurt and saying all these things and it was very much about her and I like let her have it. And I was like, I, I, I hear you. And like, I totally agree. And like, I, I, and I apologize. And I told her where I was coming from. And then I told her that I'm like, I, I had to be selfish. Otherwise, like this wouldn't have happened for me and like all this stuff, like I would not have had a future in this and I would have had nothing. And we had this like beautiful conversation about it and she was so honest with me and so brave. And like, it was, it was a great reminder that like I hurt people, you know, doing being selfish and how we were able to move past it by just talking about it and not getting angry or like overreacting. And we like really just like told each other like the, the, the scenarios that we kind of like built in our heads, like imagined instead of like what actually happened. And it, we were, it was just such a great moment of like, not everything needs to be so dramatic and blown out of proportion. Like it can be as simple as like that really hurt. And I wish whatever. And then like coming to it from where you are instead of just like constant re constantly rehashing what happened. There's a beautiful, like one of my favorite uh, professors in college used to say the end of one thing is the beginning of something else. And I think for so many people, like they don't like finality, like they don't want something to end. So they're constantly on to the next thing, but the, the other thing never ended. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that, that like you're able to like hold on to what happened, but let it go. Yeah. I feel like there's such a potentially strong action step in this of, I mean, for me, for anyone listening, like what in your life needs to be over. Right. And again, it doesn't have to be this super dramatic thing, but the blessing of letting something end or shift or change. I, I also think it's, it's interesting that we've wound up in a conversation about friendship because so yeah. much of your story, I mean, or what I see online, right? Like, so what I have projected onto your story and like evolution seems to be about becoming a better friend to yourself. Not that I know that I've heard you use that language, but I feel like that's just something that comes up for me when I follow your work and your writing and stuff. And I'm, I'm interested to hear if it's felt that way for you. Like, do you feel like running or like the last four years, like there has been an element of becoming like learning to be a better friend to yourself? I absolutely think that's one of the cornerstones of what I do because I, I mean, I truly believe that you cannot love someone else unless you love yourself. I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that doesn't mean that you can't, you can't, you're like incapable of love, but that level of vulnerability and trust that comes with love, you will not be capable of giving that away if you don't know what it feels like to give it to yourself. And it learning that for myself was so difficult, I think. Like, I, I, it was also transformational, and I think the pros outweigh the cons, but I don't want to glorify this because learning to love myself and all of my flaws and all of the horrible things that I do and, you know, the, the pain I cause other people and the, my selfishness, which has become one of my worst traits now, you know, like I, 
I flew to one end of the spectrum and now I have to work to get back to that balance end. But learning to not, and this isn't just rooted in body image, you know, like I think, I think learning to love yourself and all of your glory and flaws is really, really, really hard. And the sooner you can do that and accept yourself as you are, then it's easier to accept other people and see them as they are instead of these glorified versions of them that we create and only seeing what we need from them, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. But yeah, I really think that's such a huge one because I I also think it's rooted in like, uh, what's that word when you look up to someone like role role model? I think think for women, especially like we're role models to the other girls in our lives, be it nieces, daughters, friends, kids, uh, people who we look up to, you know, like living your living your best life and living your most vulnerable self are such like buzzwords right now. But we are there's a huge change that's happening right now for women and we have to live it. There's a lot of focus on the next generation and I'm like, that's great. And I do think we need to like make a change for them, but like if we tell them all these things, but we refuse to do them <laughs> for ourselves, and if they don't see us modeling that behavior, it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, something, it's interesting, you know, to hear you talk about self-love and how that's a buzzword and this kind of stuff. I feel like this idea of being a better friend to myself has been more applicable and more freeing than any of the sort of self-love, self-acceptance stuff for the main reason, and again, I think this is a theme that's coming out of what we're talking about too, is the sort of black and white ideas of like, I either love myself unconditionally all the time and it's like hearts and stars and, you know, fairy dust, whatever, or I like hate myself and it's a pit of self-loathing. And maybe Maybe sometimes both of those are true, but I think the 99 point whatever percent of the truth for most folks is somewhere on the spectrum between those things. And like yeah. the, this this idea of being a good friend to yourself, to me, feels like more actionable. Like I think about being a good friend to somebody else, that it involves actions, right? That I, whatever it is that you think being a good friend is, right? Whether it's the like kind, open communication, whether it's, you know, checking in on them when they had a hard day, whether it's just whatever, whatever that looks like. But it's to me, like being a good friend is rooted in action. And that the, a lot of the self-love space is, I have found to be a little bit too kind of like mantra-y or airy-fairy and not that those things can't work, but it's been really helpful for me to be like, okay, if I were a good friend to myself, how would I behave? Oh, I would do this. I would do that. like actually making it about tangible things, which has been able to move me further down the line towards more of that like unconditional like feelings of love that it doesn't have to be, I don't know, I think my initial like thought or hang up was, well, until I love myself unconditionally, I, you know, that's, I, I can't do any of these nice things for myself. But I actually think you can come at it the other way that you can be a good friend to yourself. And then that leads to just more self-respect and more self-love. Totally. I couldn't agree more. So talking about some specifics in that regard, what are a few specific things that you do when you are being a good friend to yourself? Like, what is, what does that look like? Like, what is Kelly need as a friend? <laughs> I think not being afraid to put yourself first sometimes is really important. You know, like I think there are a lot of people out there, especially women who will drive themselves into the ground being there for their spouses or their kids or their friends or their parents, you know, like they would never think to say, I need to, I can't do this. No, no, 
I think saying no is one of the hardest things. And I think sometimes that's really important because if you're giving everything to other people, like you leave nothing for yourself and that that ripple effect is huge. It's kind of like that. Uh, the dad kicks the what the dad hits the mom, the mom hits the kid, the kid kicks the dog, the dog bites someone else or whatever that saying is, you know, Mm -hmm. I think those ripple effects, if you're not taking care of yourself are, I think that, that con outweighs the pro of everyone else is taking care of so much more because everyone watches you and they see it, you know, and you're modeling that behavior of what's expected. And I think we also see the suffering when people don't take care of themselves too, or don't put themselves first. And I think it is a balance. Like I think you can't be too selfish. I think that's one of them. And then the other one I think is just being really honest with yourself. And I think this should come through like journaling or talking with someone who you really love and care about and not being afraid to say things that you may not believe. You know, like I think sometimes you have to talk a problem through and like you're going to say things that like they that just because you say something doesn't mean you believe it, but you have to talk through talk it through or work it through or figure out what you think about certain things. Like you're not going to have the answers to everything, but like seeing everything. I know for me, if I'm feeling really, really, really overwhelmed, something I do is I just start like writing. I have prompts that I'll do, but like normally when I start writing, like within that, that piece, I can figure out like the five actionable things I need to do to like make, just take a step forward and like start working through it instead of pushing everything aside and not worrying about it. But I think giving yourself permission to just like brainstorm almost and grow and evolve and give yourself permission to question things and just start seeing the world a different way is important. And then I think I think the last one is uh, leaning into friendships and... Uh, doing fun things. So not just getting coffee or like going to get food, like actually like going on a bike ride or going on a walk or like doing things that you just maybe wouldn't immediately like think are the easiest way to stay in touch. Yeah. I think everything that you just said is so well said. The thing that um, stuck out for me, you mentioned, um, I don't think you use this word, but these, this wording, but the essentially like the power of telling yourself the truth, right? Like being honest with yourself. And I have found that that is one of the kindest things that I can do for myself. And one of the best things I can do for my mental health is I used to shy away from telling myself the truth, especially hard truths, because of a fear that, well, as soon as you acknowledge something that's true, especially if it's something in your life that's not working, then you're going to have to do something about it. And maybe that's the case, but also maybe not. Like I've created over the past couple of years, space between that. Like, what if it's okay to tell myself the truth about a situation, see things as you, as they are, as you said before, and that doesn't actually mean that I have to do something about it. Like I can, I can acknowledge the truth. Maybe I'm not ready to make a change yet. Maybe I'm not ever going to be, but that there is a lot of power in letting go of the, all of the effort that it takes to lie to yourself. Like if there's one overarching goal that I have like as a human right now for myself and the way I treat myself, it's that I am not going to lie to myself anymore. Doesn't mean that I'm always going to be as honest as I need to be with other people. Doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean that I'm not like a piece of shit sometimes, but to myself, like I am not lying to myself anymore. And that has been honestly, like it sounds cliche, but it's been really transformative. Yeah, that's it. It's hard. (laughs) We have so many coping mechanisms, (laughs) you know? But I, I do think that's like such an important step to just like relinquish 
the perfection that we feel like we need to constantly be striving for. Mm -hmm. So the last thing um, that I wanted to ask you before we start to wrap up, I know that um, when you were on the show last time, we talked a lot about redefining what strength looks like and how that's something that you are incredibly passionate about. And I'm curious on what your current thoughts are. Like, How do you define what strength is for yourself right now? I think strength is doing everything you can to be the strongest version of yourself. And I know that like that sounds like you should be lifting all the weights and eating all the broccoli and like not having anything fun. Like that's what that means, but that's not true. I think I think we're all doing our best, but for the most part like understanding where you're at and what's actually possible today is the secret to living towards your strongest self because yeah, I'm sure we all would like to spend an hour with a personal trainer and then like do things that make us actually physically strong and then go to therapy for an hour to be mentally strong. And that would be awesome. And then have a a nutritionist make all of our meals for us so that we don't have to worry about anything. But the truth is like work's hard. Life's hard. Family's hard. What can you do today to be the strongest version of yourself tomorrow? Starting there and then working from there. And for me, I think so much of like Strength is this perception of the perfect beauty ideal, which is a thin body. And it just doesn't look like anyone, you know, I think that body exists. But for the most part, like the average woman is a size 14 or higher. And uh, it just frustrates me to no end that we're still at a point where like plus size is its own industry. And we don't see, you know, the range of strength represented in the media. And we still have companies not creating clothing for for the everyday woman it's it's frustrating and i do think it's really important for the next generation of women and for our generation and the generation ahead of us you know to be st- strong in the bodies we're in mm-hmm. and not pretend like love your body every moment of every day but treat it like you know a temple you should this is this is all we have this body keeps us alive and we all really should be doing everything we can to not strive to be thin or skinny or, you know, adhere to these beauty ideals, but to like be the strongest versions of ourselves possible. Because that's, I think, where true confidence comes from. You see what you're capable of. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you're talking about this and about strength as something that is larger than physical ability. Because I think for me, I mean, I'm disillusioned with the health and wellness industry and fitness industry for many reasons. This could be its own like multi-part podcast and has come up for sure in other episodes. But I've been thinking a lot about the problem with having an ideal at all, right? Like that the marketing language of strong is the new skinny, like et cetera, can still be portrayed, it's like still an unrealistic aesthetic, right? Like, sure, like maybe this new beauty ideal means that we don't need to be super skinny to be attractive, but we do need to be fit and toned in the right way that matches this ideal, right? That I think even strength can be co-opted in this like fitnessy ideal way, and which I think is especially problematic if our ideas and ideals of strength are tied solely to physical ability, you know, to ableism and activities that only able-bodied folks can do. Like, I think that that can get problematic as well. And so when it sounds like you're thinking through those things also. And so this idea of, like you said, like what makes you feel strong and, and maybe strong isn't the word that connects with other people, but like with everyone, but 
yeah, defining that for yourself. And maybe that has literally nothing to do with anything physical. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but being able to kind of like widen the lens a little bit and even acknowledge that within the world of fitness or health or whatever you want to call it, like the, the new ideals are still, it's still an ideal, right? And, and anything that's set up on a pedestal, it's never going to be something that's, um, that everyone can access. Yeah. Not everyone's going to want to live a super athletic life. You know, I think that's another huge problem with the running world. And I do agree, like it shouldn't be tied to physicality. Like when I think of strong, I think of, you know, astronauts, the first female astronauts. I think of the women who are teaching other girls to code, you know, like I think of breakthroughs and I think of, you know, just so many different women like saying this is this is what strength looks like. And it looks different on so many different people. Yeah. And just like even this idea, you know, I I thought about this with running too. For me, because I had never been athletic as a kid, which it sounds like you can relate to as well. And I I literally couldn't run two consecutive minutes when I first started. And so it seemed I got um, very... what do I want to say? I definitely drank the Kool-Aid of, well, if I can do it, anyone can do it, right? There's something in that story, which actually yeah. is not true. Like different bodies have different abilities. Like not everyone can run a half marathon. Like that's just, that's just not true. And so and I not think- not everyone wants to. Well, and, and both of those, right? Like not everyone, or, you know, anything, but just like the, the, these different- realms of things like it's literally not accessible to everyone so okay let's stop like pretending that it is and you know i don't know like shaming people for that kind of thing but i love what you were saying like yeah first female astronaut first this kind of like that there's so many different versions of what strength looks like and having that kind of larger conversation and having like you said before like all different types of role models for all different types of things and like a wider representation in kind of like all industries which i know is something that you care about is super important yeah a hundred percent i just I, when I think of strength, I think of like withstanding and I think of, uh, I just think of like fighting and challenges and perseverance. Like those are the words I think are synonymous with strength. I don't Mm -hmm. think like six pack, right, right, (laughs) biceps, (laughs) marathon. Like I, I don't know why, like that's just not what I think about. Yeah. And I love going back to, to your question of like, okay, well, what makes you feel strong? And like letting us leave space for different people to have different answers. Yeah. It's awesome. Letting yourself be seen in your strength, in your glory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially if whatever that looks like is not necessarily the mainstream definition of what, you know, strength is. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. And as you might remember, we end these with some rapid fire questions. Basically, um, it's seven questions that everyone, this, all the guests this season will be answering the same seven questions. If you're down to answer some totally random questions. <laughs> of course. You're like, bring it. Let's do it. Let's do um, it. What's one activity that you can always count on to make you feel good? Eating cupcakes. Always. Yes. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, let's fast forward five years and you're talking to your future self or rather your future self is talking to you. What advice does this future self give you for what to do right now? Oh, I, I don't want to say I hate the answer. It's go for it. Like what's get out of your own goddamn way. <laughs> That's so good. Stop. I know. Such a little biatch. <laughs> there you go. Well, five years from now, I will play this for you. And <laughs> that's amazing. Um, who's one of your favorite people to follow on social media? <gasps> um, 
I really love to follow Oprah <laughs> because I feel like Oprah gives zero fucks and like does not care if anyone thinks she's goofy or whatever. She just, I think you could tell that Oprah does her social media, like her Instagram, you know, <laughs> like it's all her. And I love that. I love that it's not like perfectly curated and it cuts off in weird places. I just think it's so great. What's one thing that helps you when you're feeling really overwhelmed and stressed? Writing. I love to write and I love to go to the theater. Yeah, actually, follow-up question. You mentioned before journaling and that you have some specific prompts for yourself. Is there a question that you often ask yourself through writing that you've found helpful or like a particular prompt you want to share? I love to write. Like there's there's this big prompt that I'll, I'll do that I'll, I fill out every morning. But like one of them is like more than anything else in the world I want and then more than anything else in the world right now I want. Like those are two separate questions. And that's always a good that always kind of helps me figure out like what's the long term goal and then what's what can I do right now. And like sometimes that's like get a glass of water or sometimes it's like call blank or ask for help from blank, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are awesome prompts. Definitely going to write those down and steal them for myself. Thank you. Um, how do you typically spend the last hour of your day, the hour before you go to sleep? What does that look like? I watch television. I'm that I do that now. <laughs> I, I'm watching Handmaid's Tale right now. I just watched it again today, the second little episode that just came out, but that show is something I think everyone should be watching right now. But yeah, I watch TV. Um, and then the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often lately? I think I told you the confidence code last time, but that book still like whenever anyone says that it like shoots to my mind, but I just read this book. It's called, so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. Yeah. I've read that twice now. And that book is another book that everyone should read. Uh, that's been on my list for a while. So, okay. Oh, well, I will so good. bump that up. Um, and then the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is, I literally, this just popped into my head. So take this with a grain of salt. This may be stupid. And, but, uh, Grab a piece of paper and write down the one thing that you are terrified of people seeing in you and uh, try to vocalize it somehow. Oh, that's a good one. I don't know why that just popped into my head. No, but I my that's, that's I good. I like it. hate it and like it at the same time. So that means I know like what an one. interesting concept of like re- just like revealing yourself <laughs> or, or also even that this idea that I feel like Uh, Sure, we're all like afraid of lots of different things, but there's like one element I think of everyone that they're most afraid of being seen or most afraid of being, uh, I don't know, like visible about and how much work we do to shield that part of ourselves and like what freedom it would be to stop doing that. Yeah. Get off the hamster wheel. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a current favorite way to connect with new folks? I am on social media at it's at Kelly KK Roberts and my website is she can and she did.com and you can fill out a form and get in touch with me there. I will put links to all of those things in the show notes. Kelly, you're the best. Thank you so much. I love talking with you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the real talk radio family. 
Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer five random questions? I totally am. So my first question is my favorite question. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Well, right now I'm totally obsessed with poetry and astrology. I just got certified to be a wild writing teacher, which is a transformational writing process where you read a poem and people write for 15 minutes and it just sort of opens up your right brain and leads you to think about things and discover things about yourself. And I'm also, I've also been obsessed with astrology for like 30 years. So I want to somehow combine the two. Um, the name of my uh, workshops are going to be called Unlock Stories because the name of my blog is Unlocked. So like Unlock Stories Under the Full Moon or Unlock Stories Under the New Moon, where we'll talk a little bit astrology and then we'll do some writing and maybe talk some career stuff. So it's going to be a, a wonderful potpourri of things. I am first in line for that. That sounds incredible. <laughs> um, so the next question is about money. When it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on? And then what's one thing that's a totally worthwhile splurge for you when you can? Oh, good question. Um, well, as you and I were talking about, I live in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive cities I've ever been in. So I try to be very careful. So I try not to spend money. I'm not a real money spender on things. And I've also been like really careful about not getting that cup of coffee on the street or the juices when I know that I don't really need it. It's just more fun. So I don't spend money on that. And I do love to spend money on experiences. Um, so I would spend money on travel. I would spend money on doing things with friends and my family, things that sort of we can remember. Yeah, totally. If anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? That's a good question. If anything were possible, I guess one of my big dreams and fantasies would be to make enough money through my writing um, and be able to write books and live a lifestyle where I can do some traveling and uh, not have to worry about, you know, the day to day of making a living. That's also one of my big dreams and fantasies. Look at us <laughs> with all these things in common. <laughs> Spoiler alert for everyone, you're going to be a guest on the show at, towards the end of the year. And so there's lots of good things already that I'm picking up on that we can talk about. So that's going to be Absolutely. exciting. Um, what's one thing that you would love to do between now and the end of the year? Well, I'm actually working on a book based on my interview series, How Did You Do That?, which you and Paul were both part of. And um, I would love, 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 I just finished the book proposal. And between now and the end of the year, I would love to get a publisher and actually write the book. So that's a big dream. Oh, I love it. So the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? I think that I wish people were more open and honest about um, the, the, 
San Francisco is, is such a young city. You know, it's filled with 20 and 30 somethings and people doing new and great things. And not being a 20 and 30 something myself, it is often difficult to like navigate these waters. And I wish people would talk about that more and there would be more of a coming together of the m millennial generation and the boomer generation and more of an acknowledgement on the value of experience um, in this in this world that we live in. Mm, it's so well said. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show, and then um, maybe what you love most about being in our little community. Well, I decided to support the show because you're so inspirational. I actually got to know you a little bit through Alex Franzen and also through the interview we did. And then I followed you on Instagram um, when you were hiking last year. And your grit and determination were on a daily basis were so inspiring to me. And you also have this amazing ability to create community through this program and through everything you do. And I love community. And so that's why I was very drawn to support the show. And what was the second question? I forgot. Oh, oh, just if there's something that you particularly like about being in the community. I just love listening to your podcast. I love the extra things that you offer us. I really like your, your blog posts. So yeah, it feels like a really nice place to be and find interesting people doing interesting things. And I, I just love reading about and hearing about what other people are doing. Well, that means so much to me. Isn't, yeah, isn't the community the best? It's like so many cool people, like you so said, like many warm cool and people. open-hearted and doing interesting things. Yeah, it's my favorite thing too. Um, so the last thing I'll ask, I, I mean, you mentioned that you live in San Francisco. Is there a social media link or something else that you want to share in case folks want to reach out? Absolutely. My my website is ellenfondler.com and I'll spell my last name since it's a tough one. F is in Frank, O-N, D is in David, I-L-E-R, and it has my blog and it has my newsletter sign up. So anything they... And my and the interview series of which you are right there. So I would love for people to go to my website and sign up and get my newsletter. And that would be a great thing. Perfect. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be a blast. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 